when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, the parade of cabinet appointments continued in the U.S. Senate as Trump's nominees continued to try to strut their stuff under what was often withering questioning from Senate Democrats. There should be little doubt that all of these people are going to be confirmed, but it has to be said, in another era, some of what these folks have said during these hearings would have gotten them bounced from consideration. Welcome to the new normal, though, which is, by the way, the old abnormal. Meanwhile, this week, the Huffington Post hosted a debate between seven candidates who are vying to lead the Democratic National Committee. At issue, who's doing the best coming to terms with the Democratic Party's catastrophic 2016 losses? What reforms are coming to the committee to make their process fairer? And who has the best vision for the party's future? It was, what's the word? Yes, disappointing. It was very disappointing. Finally, the battle over Obamacare continues to moderately simmer, I guess. The desire to repeal remains strong, even in the face of a robust public defense of the law that's emerged in recent weeks. But as they say, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. GOP lawmakers still haven't committed to a plan. And what they seem likely to rally behind isn't what even committed Trump voters want. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Jonathan Cohn, and Arthur Delaney. And here's what happened first. Hello, America. Welcome back to another edition of So That Happened, your weekly chronicle of stuff that's grinding our gears. My name is Jason Liggins. I am the editor of Ether Press at the Huffington Post. Uh, I wanted to just say right away, right off the top, that by the time you hear this, chances are we will have inaugurated a new president. I know we like hate talking about temporal reality, but we recorded this prior to inauguration, and so we don't have a lot of comments about the inauguration itself. Uh, joining us right off the top, we have Zach Carter. Hello, everyone. And Arthur Delaney. Hi. Confirmation hearings have been going on and on and on and on and on up on Capitol Hill. Uh, it's been a blitzkrieg. It's been a blitzkrieg, yes. It's been a real show. Yeah, it's been quite a spectacle. It's been a bad show. And it's, yeah, it's been interesting. Certainly interesting. It's been an interesting study in a bunch of people coming to Capitol Hill to talk about doing jobs they want to do for Donald Trump, repeatedly saying things that would have gotten them excommunicated from the Senate if uh, another president had suggested these people. Uh, I want to start Ben Carson. He's a neurosurgeon who has been tapped to do stuff with affordable housing. What? Well, I mean, I think in Donald Trump's mind, you know, he is black. Get the so, black guy yeah. to do the black stuff. And look, to be fair, the HUD the HUD position often is sort of a token position that goes to a person of color. That's true. Uh, the, Democrats and Republicans alike do this. I think a lot of people worry about HUD because the propensity of this agency to very quickly become kind of a slush fund 
for developers. And one of the people who could potentially benefit from the HUD slush fund is the president himself, who's a real estate developer. And this is a point of contention that, that Carson got into with Elizabeth Warren, right? Yeah, I think we I think we got a clip for that. You want to listen to it? Yes, let's listen to that. Among the billions of dollars that you will be responsible for handing out in grants and loans, can you just assure us that not one dollar will go to benefit either the president-elect or his family? It will not be my intention to do anything I, to, to benefit any any American. I understand that. It's for all Americans, but everything may, that we do. Do I take that to mean that you may manage programs that will significantly benefit the president-elect? You can take it to mean that I will manage things in a way that benefits the American people. That is going to be the goal. So why wouldn't he just say, no, I won't let Donald Trump enrich himself with HUD funds? $10 at a time. What's what's amazing, too, it's like, if you're in charge of a regulatory agency, you can actually craft detailed, complicated regulations which say, actually, uh, we're not going to allow the $10 to go there. You could just do that. You don't yeah. have to cancel the – it's not It's not program or no program. You could. You can actually the lady or the exercise tiger. some agency here. Uh, but he wouldn't do it because Donald Trump owns a 46-building, uh, uh, more than 5,000-unit um, affordable housing complex in Brooklyn. Uh, overseen by HUD. He doesn't own the whole thing. He's got an ownership stake in it. Uh, but clearly, things will happen that HUD does if money f- flows to this uh, this this complex in the form of rental assistance or, or an upkeep on the building. Um, this is a subsidy to Donald Trump, and a, there's just no avoiding it. In a situation where we just described where rental assistance is very, very uh, meagerly doled out, it could matter if it gets doled out more to Trump properties than to other people were going without. Theoretically, the Trump Corporation could fix their own shit. And they, I mean, conceivably, how you could give them a pass on having substandard conditions. I mean, this is a contentious issue. You can't be putting people in apartments that are moldy, for instance. Right. That's or they have lead own. in their water or whatever. Okay, well, since we brought up lead, I want to skip to talk about Scott Pruitt who is Trump's nominee to head the Environmental Protection Agency, an agency he's very familiar with, if only because he keeps suing the EPA for attempting to solve environmental problems through regulation and enforcement. Uh, he's lost many lawsuits, including one in which he contested the EPA and their regulations on mercury emissions. Uh, but this week, when he was when he was asked about one of the key issues – of the year for America and the election, uh, lead poisoning. We all reported numerous times on what's going on in Flint, Michigan. Uh, well, he seemed to be a bit adrift about lead poisoning. Yeah, Senator Ben Cardin, a Maryland Democrat, asked him about lead poisoning in light of Flint. Do you believe there is any safe level of lead that can be taken into the human body, particularly a young person? Senator, uh, that's something I've not reviewed nor nor know about. I, I would I would be very concerned about any level of lead uh, going into the drinking water or in obviously human consumption. Uh, but I've not looked at the scientific uh, research on that. So that's just a shockingly, shockingly terrible answer. There's almost been nothing as well reported on this for, past year for a year and a half. We've been talking about on. the Flint water crisis where kids got. Lead poisoning in their bodies from the water. And 
every story about this, or at least a vast majority of them, would include a line that, you know, no amount of lead is safe. Even low levels of lead exposure are dangerous. You don't need to read the research to know this because it's not controversial. It's, uh, it's in the EPA's regulations. It's really well known. And no one, no one told him this? It's okay. He only wants to run the agency responsible for overseeing this issue at the federal level. The EPA is directly responsible for making sure water utilities don't <laughs> let lead get in the water for the reason that even the tiniest amount of lead exposure can stunt people's growth and damage their brains. And make them violent criminals. That's true. There's a huge there's there's a there's a deep connection between lead poisoning and violent crime and impulsive decision making. Yeah, and, and the, being stupid. It, it it stunts people's intellectual development. It's terrible. It's so, really terrible. I, I'm not saying this this man who obviously he doesn't need to know how the regulation works. He doesn't need to know the ins and outs. He doesn't need to have read the studies. How come no one told him he will take charge of this agency while it is in the midst of rewriting the regulation that is so weak it allowed Flint to happen. They knew about the problem and didn't do anything because they were concerned with obeying the regulation he and he doesn't know anything anything well uh, while we're on the subject of not knowing anything and i'm really working the segues hard this time let's talk about betsy devos betsy devos is the super super duper goddamn rich charter school enthusiast to put detroit schools to the torch um, this was one of the most embarrassing kind of things. This was sort of like like a confirmation hearing apocalypse. <laughs> right. This is a person who, under questionings from Virginia Senator Tim Kaine, refused to say whether all schools should be held – I'm talking about public, charter, and private – should be held to the same level of accountability if they receive government money, uh, who wouldn't commit, under Elizabeth Warren's questionings, to enforcing the existing rules – uh, laws that govern for-profit universities. These have been scamming people right and left who uh, wasn't able to properly distinguish uh, proficiency and growth when Al Franken asked her about uh, test scores. This is a hot debate in educational circles, and she should have been familiar with it. When uh, New Hampshire Senator Maggie Hassan asked her about the Individuals Disabilities in Education Act, uh, she seemed to think it was a state-run program and not a federal guarantee that special needs students would get education. And on top of all of that, then we got to the bears. Do you think that guns have any place in or around schools? Uh, I think that's best left to locales and states to decide. You can't say definitively today that guns shouldn't be in schools? Well, I, I will refer back to uh, Senator Enzi and the school that he was talking about in Wapiti, Wyoming. I think probably there, I, I would imagine that there's probably a gun in the school to protect from potential grizzlies. Grizzlies! That grizzly just wants to learn fucking calculus, man. So she should have just said no guns in schools. Well, she's not going to say that, is she? She's not going to say that, is she? She could have found a way to say I'm cool with guns in schools without having to invoke like the terror, the grisly terror. The grisly this was just terror. This was just not a good defense. But look, that was Senator Chris Murphy questioning. It, by the it, way, it, in a lot of ways, that was her least objectionable statement. You know, really, look, yeah. Look seriously, if there's a bunch of fucking grizzlies coming at my 11 year old's middle school, you know, I'll be honest. In that situation, I'm not going to be a hardliner about whether there's a rifle at the school. Okay, uh, but sh- should we have private or public education? Should public education be a thing? Do you want to privatize schools? Do you want to crack down on for-profit colleges that are illegally scamming people? 
These are pretty basic questions, and she never had a good answer for any of them. No, she really didn't. She really didn't. I know that among educational circles, her confirmation was was uh, just a uh, a disaster, a disaster. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that other than that. Uh, Steve Minukin. Speaking of disasters, no, oh, wait, was this one of the more disastrous ones? I didn't have a really good segue. Minuchin has, yeah. has, been, uh, has been a little all over the place. Let's just say he's been back and forth. So so yes, but but the one of the one of the interesting things to me about the fact that Minuchin has been Minuchin. Uh, Minuchin. Minuchin. Good it's God. it's like Munchkin, but it looks like it's misspelled. Okay. Minuchin uh being appointed to run Treasury is that I think one of the key economic issues of the past eight years has been the concomitant foreclosure crisis that fell that came in the wake of the financial collapse and the Obama administration's failure to properly deal with it, I think took really cost him and Democrats. And I think a lot of those chickens that came home to roost in this election dovetail back to those kind of might've cost Hillary Clinton the election, right? They dovetail back to those kind of issues where ordinary people who played by the rules and got screwed, didn't get helped. And as they watch, uh, bank after bank take take home taxpayer money in, in wheelbarrows to make themselves whole. Stephen Yukin is at the center of of foreclosure crisis. It's interesting. He's he's often referred to as a foreclosure king. I think it's a little bit of an overstatement because he uh, he bought this bank called IndyMac, which was the first you know pretty good sized bank to fail in the two thousand eight crisis. Yeah. Uh, he bought it after it failed with a bunch of guarantees from the federal government to protect them against losses. Uh, and then he just basically put in uh, in place the pretty standard don't do anything about foreclosures except screw people model that existed at all of the big banks. Um, and so his bank wasn't as big as, say, J.P. Morgan Chase or Citigroup, um, but it was doing foreclosures pretty much constantly. Famous story about him foreclosing on some pensioner who owed all of 27 cents. Yeah, tw- literally 27 cents. And there was a, there was a state investigation. Uh, from the California Attorney General's office, which where the prosecutors found that you know there was good reason to go after this bank for fraud over foreclosure. For some reason, we don't really know why, the state AG at the time, Kamala Harris, who's now a Democratic senator from California, uh, decided not to pursue that case. Uh, but when you saw when you saw him on the Hill today, I mean, for the most part, Democrats were just kind of letting him go. But Sherrod Brown really went after him. And he went after him on foreclosures, and he didn't have good answers. He he would say, "Hey, you know, you're ta- you're talking to me about the California state, you know, fraud case. I would refer you to the office of the comptroller of the con- the currency, the the federal regulator." And he would say, "Okay, well, let's look at what the federal regulator said about you and all the terrible things you did on foreclosures." And he would say, "Hey, I I really can't speak about." the office of the comptroller of the currency, you should really talk to the California attorney general about this stuff. And they just went around in circles like this. And what's amazing to me is that Trump gets elected on this, you know, it, it's not all economic issues, but there's a lot of economic anxiety and frustration that's out there, right? And that's clearly part of Trump's support. And the guy he puts in for treasury secretary is like a cartoon supervillain. I mean, on foreclosures, on economic anxiety. Not only is he a second generation Goldman Sachs partner. His dad was a Goldman Sachs partner, too. He leaves this to be a Hollywood financier. He's one of the guys who, who funded Avatar. And then he forecloses on people during the financial crisis. Is there a worse PR move for you to make if you're trying to drain the swamp than this guy? I can't think of one. Trump's Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, similarly uh, was involved in the firing of a bunch of 
manufacturing and mining workers whose jobs were shipped overseas. Yep. Which he was also asked about and was like, well, you know, did the right thing. His defense has been his defense has been that he saved more jobs than he lost. And to be fair to Ross, he does get a lot of support from organized labor groups right. who who lionize him for the efforts he made to actually save a lot of those jobs. In a way, Ross comes out of this hearing being the one guy that that Republicans on the Senate maybe aren't so comfortable with because of these close ties to traditionally la- liberal labor groups. Uh, Ross also had, I hope I'm not getting out of order, but th- he's one of several with a strange disclosure surprise. Right. Yes, oh, yeah. exactly. Where he, he, was had, odd. he had sorted this out at the top of the hearing with the ranking member Bill Nelson of Florida and John Thune of South Dakota that he had in his employ at his household an undocumented immigrant for seven years and that he looked at all his employees. Uh, he asked them all to provide documentation in the process of this confirmation in the last month. So we had to fire this lady. This is something that in the past uh, sank the nominations of three different people, at least two in the Clinton administration and one in the uh, George W. Bush administration. And this is the, the incoming Trump administration, the most hardline immigration stance of any and Republicans in Congress are just going to look the other way and confirm this guy. And to be clear, I don't think that people should be confirmed or not confirmed based on whether they're friends with or have paid undocumented people. I think it's stupid. I agree. But the freaking precedent that exists here. But the worst part of this is someone got fired. It's The point is yeah. it's a the one hypocrisy got... alert. <laughs> right. right. It's a hypocrisy alert. But yeah. And the, and the one, you know. The, the one guy who's allowed to do this stuff is the person who's just the meanest to immigrants rhetorically. And, of course, you know, whether we whether we agree with the, the, the matter on the merits or not, it is this this has been something that has sunk nominees before. What can I say? It's crazy. But uh, I think it's going to be crazy for a while, guys. Buckle up. It's going to be weird. Uh, anyway, thank you guys for doing the segment. You're going to be back in just a minute. I don't know why I'm even delaying things. Fuck it. We'll be right back. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And we're back. Nothing's changed. 
Zach Carter's still here. Hi, everybody. Arthur Delaney's still here. Hi. You're all still stuck with me, too, but we're going to talk about something different right now. Uh, this week, the uh, Huffington Post hosted a debate between the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people vying to be the next chair of the Democratic National Committee, which is a lot like being the next chair of a coffin factory. Uh, but uh, it was hosted hosted by uh, hosted and moderated by our own bureau chief Ryan Grimm and our new editor in chief Lydia Polgreen. Uh, Zach, you were there. Uh, you didn't think much of what happened. Yeah, I think uh, pretty withering. If you're a Democrat, it's really time to start uh, reaching for the despair bottle. Wow, uh, it's pretty bad. Um, Look, I think for a lot of Democrats, they've been following this race because there's really nothing else to follow if you're a Democratic, politically-minded, activist type of person. Well, right? wait a minute. This is an important institution that helped Hillary Clinton defeat uh, economic populists who plausibly could have beaten Donald Trump. So this isn't – this is not uh, small Let's potatoes. Let's not litigate the primary. I, I agree. <laughs> they, they did help. I think, it's, I think it's a mistake to say that they were a deciding factor. They, I'm just they, saying you know, they, they right? played a major role in deciding yeah. who are the, the, the DNC is responsible for raising, raising money essentially for the Democratic Party. It's responsible for recruiting candidates in different you know, regions of the country for different positions from dog catcher all the way up to president. Yeah. And, and they're responsible for essentially legislating – or, or, or refereeing the primary. They, they determine the rules of the game for how the, the Democratic nominee will be selected for the presidency. And there were a lot of complaints about the way the DNC operated in 2016 among actual Democrats. Uh, last night, you did not see so many complaints from these seven candidates who are coming from all over the political spectrum. Right, the who were supposed Party. to be contending with one another. Yeah. Uh, it was I, – I just – you know, Just, so, so the race has been generally framed as this this battle between Keith Ellison, who is from the sort of Bernie Sanders wing of the party. He was an early early endorser of Bernie Sanders, and Tom Perez, who's an early endorser of Hillary Clinton, both very progressive in their pers- their perspective wings, and then a whole bunch of other randos. Right? Those randos, just to be brief, are Fox commentator Jamu Green, Idaho Democrat Party Executive Director Sally Boynton Brown, Mayor of South Bend, Indiana Pete. I don't know how to Buttigieg. Um South Carolina Democratic Chair Jamie Harrison and New Hampshire Democratic Chair Ray Buckley. Continue. So, um, you know, it's it's been framed, I think, for the public. Like there's some some actual ideological ideological struggle going on, some some effort underway to unite the party. Um, and the debate last night just showed that that was all crap. These people are playing for for the 447 people who are Democratic Party insiders who get to decide who the DNC chair is. And they had absolutely no interest in staking out any ideological turf anywhere about the future direction of the party. On one level, of course they are. They're the ones who vote. They have to win their approval. But are you saying that that this is an environment in which someone should be able to stride in there confidently and courageously tell those 447 people that for a long period of time – and I mean a long period of time – they've been kind of fucking up? Right. Look, it's not just that they lost the presidency, okay? Democrats have lost 954 state state legislature seats since Barack Obama took office. Okay, that's a lot of seats. That's all over the country. It's a big deal. They've lost 12 governorships. They don't have the House. They don't have the Senate. Anybody in their right mind looking at the Democratic Party right now has to say, okay, this is panic button emergency, you know, DEFCON 5 disaster zone. Right. Uh, And what we saw... 
on Wednesday night was a lot of people saying, well, you know, I'm I, I, I want to have some reforms. I want to be the party of innovation. Uh, it was there was nothing I, about there I, was nothing about actually changing the way the party's governed. That was or Jane Green who said party of innovation. And I just want you to say that if you really want like my blood to run cold and my anger to surface, walk around saying things like we need to be the party of innovation. That is like just nonsense buzzword nonsense. So there was this one key difference between Keith Ellison and Tom Perez, right? Where Keith Ellison said he would reinstate President Obama's ban on lobbyist contributions to the DNC, which is you know symbolic but important because of its symbolic value. And Perez said he wouldn't reinstate that ban. So did they did they litigate that? Then it, literally everybody else on stage except for Keith Ellison said. What what will we do if we can't have the eighteen million dollars from lobbyists that we got last year? They're a fundraising and, organization. Eighteen million dollars should be a drop in the goddamn bucket. Well, and look, let's be clear: the eighteen million dollars is eighteen million dollars split between lobbyists and lawyers. So it's not even just the lobbyist sphere, and that accounted for about seven percent of the total fundraising haul the DNC brought in in twenty sixteen. So it's clearly something that's recoverable. Uh, but the four hundred and forty seven members of the DNC feel personally offended when you talk about doing now, this. Me, and so they're all all the candidates are bending over backwards to say, hey, lobbyists are great. And even Keith Ellison, who is still formally against it, said he would put it up for a DNC vote. Barack Obama didn't do that when he banned lobbyist contributions in 2008. And Debbie Wasserman Schultz didn't put it up for a vote when she quietly lifted that ban in 2016. If, if there's a, a populist, an economic populist moment, like populism is ascendant, are lobbyists popular are they are they part of that? No. Literally oh, the not. lobbyists aren't popular. No, no, no. Literally, everyone hates lobbyists. Oh, everyone hates lobbyists. I, yes, like, I had forgotten. That. Used car salesmen, I think, are held in higher esteem than lobbyists, and they should be. And look, I talked to Jamie Harrison afterwards. He's a career lobbyist. That's what he does. Oh, he is a lobbyist. Yeah, he's wow. lobbied for coal and tobacco and big banks, all that other stuff. Uh, but and yet he wants to run the Democratic Party. It's amazing. But uh, but he you said you know look we we're too hard on lobbyists because look at all the CEOs look at all the billionaires we're not talking about banning their contributions we're only taking it out on the lobbyists and he has a point on this narrow section but it's sort of like okay just because you know we're shooting your grandmother doesn't mean we're also like not allowed to shoot this other guy. So Donald Trump <laughs> says he's going to drain the swamp. It's farcical. It's a joke. It's the most corrupt administration in recent times. And yet he does say he's going to ban lobbyists, and people love that. And the DNC's position is going to be amenable to lobbyists. Give us all your money, lobbyists. And look, Donald Trump has been totally two-faced about this drain the swamp thing. He's been dishonest, it's I think. It's a joke. It's right. a joke, right? Uh, but there's still a swamp. You know, there's a swamp there, and Democrats have been presiding over the government for eight years, and now they're they're inheriting, you know, a, a position of historic impotence politically, and they're saying, you know what, I like the alligators. Let's just go swimming with them. Great idea, guys. So, changing caucuses. That's all. No one wanted to do that. Oh, explain what that is. Getting rid of superdelegates. No one wanted to do that. Talk about caucuses. Caucuses are these bizarre processes where, you know, when, when you go to vote, typically your vote is one of the many other votes that get counted, and whoever gets the most votes wins. That's, that's what we, voting is. Right. And that's, what, crazy that's how democracy is supposed to work. We have about 400 years of Enlightenment political theory saying that that's how voting is supposed to go. But we could complicate all that, couldn't we? We could. 
Because complicating it would benefit party insiders who know process and who are connected to the system. And caucuses just are this bizarre, strange thing where people sit in a room and they switch sides of the room and they trade pieces of paper back and forth. And eventually something happens where the state has decided that they endorse one candidate or another. But it's not decided by voting one person, one vote. And it's uh, Caucasians. Yeah. Well, look, the, uh, the 2016 system – the, the the undemocratic thing that benefited Bernie Sanders was the caucus system because a lot of these prairie state Democrats that were really into his populist economic message went for Bernie Sanders. So Minnesota, uh, I mean, he almost won the Iowa caucuses, was, you know, 400 people away from winning that. Uh, you know, a, a, you know, there was a hint Colorado, a lot, a lot of these prairie state kind of kind of populist states have caucus systems, uh, but they're fundamentally undemocratic. But the other thing that's undemocratic about the way the Democratic Party selects its nominee is this process involving superdelegates. Superdelegates are just party insiders. They're people who are high-level, big-wig Democrats. And their, their vote counts for, like, two votes, basically? More than that. You know, they when, – when, pe- when people show up at the convention, you've got the, you've got the people who are supposed to represent the primary states and the caucus states, and they've got to vote, you know, the way the primary or the caucus went. And then there's this whole other community of people, like 800 people – who get to just cast a vote on their own because they're super. They're right. super delegates. I feel uncomfortable doing this because as anyone who's read what I've written knows about me is that I hate the super delegate system. I just hate it. It's I gross. Think it's terrible and gross. But ugh, for the fucking sake of argument, people say that it's the super delegate system that prevents catastrophic mistakes like what just happened to the Republican Party. That the superdelegates are are the lonely vanguard preventing the Democrats from nominating an insane person. Yeah, the technocrats who will save us from the unwashed masses. Aren't, we well, got to be done with that how, whole idea. How, how did that go in 2016, guys? Did that work out really well for yeah, you? Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I bring it up just to have an arguing point. I agree with you. It's, so, so, the, so this is also undemocratic. But the caucus system was undemocratic and benefited Bernie Sanders. The superdelegate system was undemocratic and benefited Hillary Clinton. And nobody on stage would make a fucking sound about dealing with either of them. They were just like, yeah, yeah. we'll be the party of innovation. It left everyone out in the hinterlands unhappy and, and, and really dissatisfied with the primary process. They wouldn't even say – Ryan Grimm, our bureau chief, asked for a show of hands for people who, who on stage who believed that the Democratic Party had put a thumb on the scale in favor of Hillary Clinton in 2016. Nobody in their right mind believes that the, that the DNC did not put their thumb on the scale in favor of Hillary Clinton, whether it – you know, wh- whether it was decisive or not, obviously it happened. Nobody would even say that that happened. Oh, they call it a gotcha question. Yeah. It's like, what did you, you walked into a debate, idiots? Of course you're getting gotcha questions. We gotcha in the room. Did you screw up is not a gotcha question. I'm <laughs> no, sorry. No, that's crazy. Did you screw up is not a gotcha question. It's a basic question of, that you should be expect, that you should expect to receive in a I, debate. These candidates are not ready to be opposition leaders. And Democrats should be, you know, if, if you're looking at the DNC race for the next leader of the party, you're looking in the wrong place. I thought that Keith Ellison had said, I thought he, you know, aside from this debate that he was uh, positioning himself as an opposition leader. No. He, he was, and then he showed up tonight, and he was pandering to all the same people that Tom Perez and Jamie Harrison and Sally Boynton Brown were pandering to. It's They're just trying to win over party insiders. There was no vision for how to reform it was the a party. Tre- reading about it afterwards was a tremendous disappointment. I recall 
uh, I was in our our, our uh, internal uh, communications channel as everyone was deciding on what the headline for the piece should be, and I, I'm really sad that we didn't go with a confederacy of DNCs. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that was good. such a good. That was such a good headline. You know what? We'll claim it for ourselves this week uh, on that regard. You know, you could, you <laughs> said this is like being uh, the chairman of the coffin factory. And, uh, you know, the coffin industry is under tremendous pressure by the rising popularity of cremation. And there's all these casket factories. They did a story about they're closing. And they hope that Donald Trump can bring their jobs back because it's cheaper to make coffins in Mexico. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so... How about that, Democrats? Even the coffin industry has a better plan for saving their dying industry than Democrats do. Um, there'll be nothing left to bury the Democrats in. Well, you know, look, it's uh, it's it's one debate. It's just a DNC, uh, but uh, it's really dissatisfying to see the failure to grapple with the real institutional promises this party has. They they just let themselves get run roughshod over. They, I'm looking they, for a DNC chair that will make. Democratic voters excited to vote in every possible election again. No, the basic the basic line is that they the Democratic Party leadership, the reason they lost in 2016 is because they fell out of touch with the way ordinary rank and file Democrats and ordinary rank and file humans who maybe don't even identify in a partisan way feel about the world, and they're running the DNC race as if those people still don't matter, and that's they're, they're never they're never going to get back to a majority or to winning with that type of strategy. All right. Congratulations on the debate, though. It sounds like our bosses did a pretty good job. We had some great graphics. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, <sighs> doom. Doom and gloom. All right. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. I just want to take the time to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. And I wanted to let you know that you can help us grow this podcast and grow the audience that you're a part of. Just go to iTunes and subscribe to So That Happened and leave a rating while you're there to let us know how we're doing. Doing so will help other people find us and allow this audience to grow and this podcast to flourish and become even better. So thanks very much for helping us out and for always being here for us. Hey, we're back, and we're going to talk once again about everybody's favorite topic, Obamacare, which is the same thing as the Affordable Care Act. I don't know if you knew that, but it's true. Joining us to talk about this, these two things are actually the same thing. We have Arthur Delaney. Okay. He's here. And fresh from Michigan, Jonathan Cohn is here. I am here. Thank you for having me to talk about my favorite subject. Of course. Yes. Of course. I wouldn't have it any other way. So we're uh, now uh, getting a little bit closer to go time for repeal and replace. Uh, and we're starting to sort of get the semblance of an idea of what a GOP plan might look like. Paul Ryan went and did a little press conference, told some people that had their lives saved by Obamacare that, that I don't know, their, their lives really weren't saved because the essential freedoms they gave up in order to keep on living. Uh, but he sort of outlined a weird idea about how people continue to have access to health care. But I'm skeptical. Am I right to be skeptical? Yes, you are right to be skeptical. I would go farther than that. I would be skeptical that they have a plan or a scheme. <laughs> um, 
They're I'm, not even at the scheme stage. No. They get the plot going yet? To be to be accurate about this, okay. I, you know, people say the sort of shorthand version of it is they don't have a plan. And then I, get, I, I say this on Twitter or whatever, and I get lots of conservatives writing back, that's not true. We have lots of plans. And they've all died in committee over the right. years. Well, a they, lot of them have. They haven't made it far enough to die in committee? They've been yeah. referred to oh, committee. Yeah. You, we wish they've been taken They up. haven't made it far enough to be referred to committee? I've, okay. <laughs> All right. So this is even worse than I thought. Yeah, I mean, they were at the Heritage Foundation. Right, right. So, I mean, a fair and accurate description, I think, would be the following. Um, Republicans have spent seven years promising to come up with a replacement for Obamacare. There are many conservatives and Republicans who have talked in general terms about what they think this should look like. There's a few pieces of legislation out there uh, that have been introduced. The most detailed one, one of the, the two most detailed one is actually by Tom Price, who is you know, appointed to be HHS secretary and quite possibly would have some influence. And I, I actually say quite possibly because that's a whole other question is what, how much price has to do with this. But let's right. We'll put a pin in that. price yeah, 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 for yeah, the yeah. time being. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, is the prices right or not? Oh, that was terrible. Mm. Um, it's okay. We love bad puns. Bad puns. Uh, oh. But, uh, you know, it was only this summer that the House side came up with a kind of set of principles, you know, and they did. They, they, they had some meetings and said, well, this is what we want our, our health care scheme alternative to look like. And Paul Ryan put his name on it and the leadership did. But uh, it's, it's, it's pretty vague still. I mean, they didn't put the numbers on and, you know, numbers matter. I mean, you know, to say that my health care scheme looks like the following and will have the following provisions – you really can't tell what it's going to do until you put dollars on it because there's a big difference between giving somebody a tax credit worth $5,000 and giving them a tax credit worth $500 because you can buy much better insurance with – right? So you are in a state where basically the house has a kind of set of principles, yeah. house leadership, and they've kind of gotten behind it. Uh, but it's not detailed. Uh, the Senate has not – has no there's no Senate leadership plan or anything like this. There's schemes running around. There is a bill by uh, Senator Orrin Hatch that's out there. But we don't know, you know – no one has said this will be a template for anything. Bill Cassidy has a bill that he's putting together. We don't know about that. And then you know, there's the White House, which you – know, well, Tom Price had done a bill for the House. It's fairly detailed. It's a real piece of legislation. You could actually score it and everything. Um, but again, that's not what the House Republicans endorsed. Exactly. I mean, it has some elements in common. And then, you know, and, and Trump has and then you have this layer of people like Paul Ryan and Donald Trump and Mike Pence and every Republican who goes out there and makes statements, very general statements about what this plan is going to do or not do. And they are vague and they are contradictory. And so they basically they are not at a place where they know what they want to do. Well, they're, they're going around saying we're going to repeal Obamacare and everyone's going to have insurance. Sometimes they say that. That's the contradictory and vague. Sometimes they just say they will have access to insurance in the same way that I have access to Michelin three-star restaurants. It's an important distinction. That is actually a perfect analogy. That's right. You know, That's why they pay I, me the big bucks. Yeah, no. I mean, analogy you know, skills. I, you know, I, I have access to the penthouse well, at the Ritz-Carlton I anytime it, I want it and exactly. can come up with the money to pay for you it. You have access to the Trump Mar-a-Lago golf club if you're an African-American. Yeah, it's terrific. Is that true? Tremendous. I think so. Huge. But okay, so maybe we don't have like really we're not far down the road enough to talk about details. But like we we talked about this last week, the Kaiser Family Foundation recently impaneled some focus groups of Trump voters. Trump voters happen to be using either Medicaid expansion or the Affordable Care Act exchange plans. And they talked to them about the kind of elements that they liked and didn't like about health insurance. And there were 
there's broad consensus that some of the things they didn't like were very high deductibles, uh, surprise costs for services they didn't think were covered. Do we have a do they have a shot at getting a plan out of the Republicans that keeps deductibles low, keeps surprise costs from from springing up on them uh, that like really sort of like holistically deals with their health care throughout their life? No. OK. No. I Sorry, mean, guys. No. I mean, I, I, unless the Republicans fundamentally change the, what they want to do. The, the easiest way to think about this is, is this is a math problem. OK. This sure. is all a very straightforward math problem. People who are sick go to the hospital. They take drugs. They need treatments. This stuff costs a lot of money. The problem historically in America has been that people – these bills are huge, so people can't afford them. Um, you can get insurance to cover you if that happens, but insurance itself gets very expensive, and so people who are poor cannot pay this. So the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, basically came in and said, let's throw some more money at this, and let's help people pay for their bills. And it did so and found the money – You know. Raise tax, tax the rich. Tax the rich. It also took some money out of Medicare, which was very controversial at the time. Uh, and it put the money together and said, we're going to take that money, took the money out of Medicare that was going to insurers, to doctors, to hospitals. We're going to put that money together. We're going to use it to help poor people get insurance, and we're going to use it to make sure that every insurance policy sold actually covers all services and whatever. Now, you know, they only had so much money to work with. So that means on the one hand, you've got 20 million people getting health insurance. That's, that's a lot of people. That's a big gain. And we know there's research on this. I mean people got better access to health care because there's, that's not in doubt. We know people are seeing the doctor more and it looks like they're healthier as a result of that. It's, you know, it's harder to prove scientifically. Um, but, you know, the truth is there's still a lot of people – You know, it wasn't as much money as it could have been. So you have a lot of people who still don't have insurance and you have a lot of people with – uh, insurance who, you know, they have high deductibles, right? I mean, you've got people walking around with Obamacare policies and they hate it because they're like, geez, I'm paying $400 a month. I got a $6,000 deductible. I don't even feel like I'm that well insured. I have uh, uh, employer-sponsored insurance and I hate it. Well, that is right. A lot of people hate their insurance. You right? mean I have to pay because I went to the doctor? You know, and, you know, insurance does cost money. So, you know, look, you can make a case that we want to make this better. You know, we should help. You know, that, and that's what you're hearing from people in these sure. groups, you know, and, you know, great. You know how you do that? You throw more money at it. And, you know, Bernie Sanders would have done that, right? I mean, and, and you know, he would have raised taxes and given everyone really comprehensive insurance. Republicans, we don't know what details they're going to do. We don't know what scheme. The one thing I can guarantee you, because they've said it, every plan they propose is that instead of spending more money, they're going to spend less. Yeah. Okay. So, contradictory statements: repeal Obamacare, get rid of subsidies, and keep the expanded rate of insurance coverage. Jonathan Cohn, is there a way to do those same, those two things at the same time? So they can repeal Obamacare, spend less, and 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 roughly keep the same number of people insured. And we're going to hear about this. I I I I'm willing to bet money. But you got to remember, there's a trick in that. Mm. What they're going to do is they're going to make sure the same number of people have insurance or close to it, but the insurance they have is going to be total crap. Can I say crap on this? You can say shit on this. Okay, it's going to be total. Ha- but you don't have to go. You don't, you don't have, have to. to say the S word. Just say what you want. Well, you know, I don't know if there's like a family publication. You know, it is, but yeah, well, we, yeah. we lo- our families are pretty rough. Yeah, my, my kids, my kids. You know, I, I, my kids. Well, we've already rooted for your kids. Yeah. So, you know, there you go. In for a penny. Yeah. In for, (laughs) right. (laughs) So, you know, you can, they will, you know, there are ways to do this. You know, they could have automatic enrollment into really crappy health insurance plans that don't cost people anything, but don't 
cover people either. And so, you know, uh, and, and basically, so you think Obamacare insurance has high deductibles? Just, well, guess, wait. just wait. And now, you know, they might say, you know, since the you know, Republicans have been talking a lot about deductibles, this is a big talking point. Paul Ryan, oh, you know, you know, deductibles are too high. It, it and, used to be that the high deductibles was a, was something they philosophically agreed with because it kept people for, out of the the health healthcare market for things they didn't need to be in the healthcare market for. They used to be they lionized high deductibles. Now yeah, yeah. Well, they, they're against them. Well, that only in rhetoric, right? I mean, sure, sure, you're, you're sure. Right. Yeah. No, but you're right. I mean, this is one of the contradictions they're running into, which is that they're sitting, you know, Paul Ryan's up there, the deductibles are too high. Donald Trump is the deductibles are well, actually their plans would have higher deductibles, or they'll do it a different way. What they could say is, okay, the insurance deductibles will be roughly what they are now, so people don't feel like they have higher deductibles. But oh, oh, by the way, you know what? You know how Obamacare has all those, you know, you have to cover mental health care. Well, these plans won't have to cover mental health care. And they'll be cheaper then because they don't have to cover mental health care, which is great unless you need mental health care, right? You know, right. And, you know, they, or they won't cover prescriptions as well or they won't cover, you know, rehabilitation, which is really important. I always sort of use this as an example because it's not something people think of. But like, you know, if you talk to people who get killed with medical bills, you know, like, you know, you're the stories that people went bankrupt or went to financial distress, a lot of times it's because, you know, they had an accident, right, a car accident. And the insurance, you know, in the old days, like it would cover the hospital bill. But then, like you know, you're in rehab for three weeks, and it wouldn't cover that because that right. was a thing that frequently. And got there was a, a total maximum that insurance plans would be willing to pay for you, and Obamacare got rid of those caps. Yep, yep. Lifetime limits, annual limits. You know, I was speaking. I got a story coming out of this, but I was speaking to a family in uh, Southern California, Orange County, affluent family. Okay, this is you know, and I think people think the only people who benefit from Obamacare are really poor, and it's certainly true. I mean, the the biggest beneficiaries are low income Americans who. Most of whom work, by the way, could not afford insurance before. But here's a family. You know, they live – I was at their house, nice house. You know, he works in investments or whatever. But, you know, they're on their own. They have to buy their own insurance. They have a daughter uh, with a pulmonary stenosis. I think I'm getting that right. Uh, it's, a, it's a rare – Heart problem. Yeah. And, you know, has already gone through a half a million dollars in medical care. Yeah. You know, and if there's a lifetime limit – they're going to hit up against that. Yeah, easily. And, and you know, and they're well off, but you know, do they have? Can they start paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical bills? Sure, no way. And they, do they belong going in debt over this? No, they don't. No. So, are, do Republicans have the guts to to face a bunch of those stories? I I had kind of gotten the impression that from their uh, waffling on repealing and replacing that they didn't. But now that you're talking about this scheme of just covering everyone with inadequate insurance. I wonder if they really would do that and then poo-poo the number of sob stories that are lobbed at them. Right. So when this all started, when Trump got elected, I mean, I think I thought overwhelming likelihood they do something that's close to total repeal and they'll, they'll, they'll put some cosmetic stuff on it to make it look better. Um, the fact that you keep hearing Ryan and Pence and Trump go out there and make statements like everyone will have access. I mean, they are sensitive to this. They're hearing, you know, we're seeing story, you know, the, the town hall meetings. It's it's the Tea Party 2009 in reverse. Nobody wants that story on their local news if you're in Congress. You don't want that mother I was interviewing. You don't want her and her three-year-old, you know, adorable little girl on a TV station in your hometown saying, why are you sort of, you know, wrecking my insurance? Um, so the question is, how much pressure can be brought to that and how clever can Republicans, you know, who, who want to do this anyway, be in terms of scheming around? And, and I think how this shakes out in the next few weeks and months is really hard to know. I do think for, you know, for what's worth, I do think there are Republicans 
and conservatives who are sincere and, you know, they want to help people. I, I actually, you know, I'm willing, you know, I, I, I do. And I think they don't like Obamacare, but they're like, you know, they don't want that daughter, that little girl to have to not. And they don't, you know, and they and we'll see this could I, I think at this point it's, it's wide open what could happen. I think so much depends, though, on what kind of pressure they feel. You know, this is this, you know, I mean, if, if I'm a, if I care about this and I'm sitting in my house right now. I'm calling my congressman. I'm I'm going to the office. I mean, that stuff makes a difference. Well, it sounds to me like they're going to get some experience of what it's like to be in a high risk pool. <laughs> That's right. Yes. All right, Jonathan. Thanks for for joining us. You're welcome back anytime. I love being You're on the show. I get to curse, so that's the best. Part. Exactly. Sorry you to all of Jonathan's kids. I know. I Sorry know. to all of Jonathan's. I'm Midwestern, kids. so you know we yeah. we're very you know we're very we're very modest. Yeah, hardy and modest. Hardy and modest. Except yeah. I'm actually an East Coaster originally, so I'm not really Midwestern. You're learning. You're learning. learning. All right. Uh, thanks a lot. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Jonathan Cohn, and Arthur Delaney. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Please check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.